So, good afternoon. <clears throat> Mine, you do look brighter <laughs> than you did a few days ago. <laughs> it's beautiful to see the, the brightness and the lightness coming out of you. It's like light beams. <laughs> so, you may not feel that different, as I was mentioning in one of the groups today, but it's very obvious from the outside that the, the energy is very different. So um, thank you for your practice over these uh, last few days and hopefully that you're feeling some of the fruits of the practice. We arrive and the first days are somewhat hard, sometimes grueling, right? And then over time, not not, not so linear, but it does, uh, the energy grows, the clarity can pick up at times, the insight can be more accessible. So... um, And then we go home. (laughs) And that's what I want to talk about tonight is really how we take this practice home. Because really what we're here to do is not just become good cushion sitting meditators, but actually to transform ourselves, transform our lives, transform our world with these qualities of awareness and compassion and insight and wisdom. So, um, this is cartoon. I was debating about sharing it, but I'll share it anyways. From Bizarro Comics, which is a really great comic. And there's a person, you can see it, there's a person sitting on the stage and there's three people judging them and uh, the person's meditating and the show is called So You Think You Can Meditate. (laughs) So you can sign up, you can audition later. What would that mean? We will soon have a reality show about meditation retreats. (laughs) It'll be the most dull but sort of wacky show ever. So from one perspective, we're going from this very calm, very uh, supportive, uh, tranquil abode where we created a a temporary monastery, and we're going out back into a life that is not quite so slow, not quite so quiet, not quite so uh, harmonious. And um, where people in life are also practicing rain, but it's a different kind of rain. It is uh, running away, avoiding, ignoring, and numbing out. <laughs> this is our typical rain practice, <laughs> running, avoiding, ignoring, and numbing out, <laughs> as opposed to whatever we've learned here. Um, or following every thought, chasing every desire, blaming and judging, reacting. That's often our normal state, which is why it's so much work when we come here, because it's a kind of a radical reorientation, radical uh, reviewing of you know, where the source of suffering really lies, not out there, but actually often in our own mind, in our own relationship to experience and our reactivity to things. So we're also going back into a consumer culture. Here we've been practicing to some degree some renunciation, letting go of a lot of impulses and habitual movings, wantings, cravings. Not that they haven't arisen, they, they arise plenty, but not necessarily acting them out. 
So, um, and there's a lot of delusion, as we know in our culture, about what brings happiness, what brings well-being, and hopefully these teachings and practices that you've been learning uh, help to inform what really brings lasting happiness. So, from another perspective, going home, going back into whatever your life is, is not that different. It's just this, it's just more of the six senses, more sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and thoughts and cognitions and perceptions. And in that, from that perspective, practice is the same. Just being present to the unfolding, changing, empty nature of experience. It can be harder to do because our lives are so full and complex, demanding, compelling, um, but really the practice of awareness is the same. And so I, as we cultivate and ground in awareness, ground in mindfulness practice, learning to abide in this present spacious awareness, we be, pre- we, we be present to the whole uh, of life coming and going. In the same way that when you drive a car, for example, you don't go anywhere, you sit still and life sort of passes by you. Same as being on a plane, life moves through you. We think we're moving somewhere, but actually we're stationary in a certain way. In the same way that awareness is the still point of experience and, and experience flows through. So we're learning in our meditation and hopefully in our lives to abide in this steady, centered, grounded place of awareness, no matter what's happening. And at the same time, it's natural that this point of the retreat, your mind's leaning forward a little bit. Anybody started planning? Anybody noticed a little kind of, oh, you know, what's next? How am I gonna do this? Can't wait to see this person. Oh, I hope I don't see that person. No, no, no. So um, as we've done here, that we keep coming back and back, okay, I'm not at home yet. I'm not in the coffee shop yet. I'm not in wherever you're fantasizing being. And it's, oh, just here, just this, just this. We take care of this moment and then whatever imagined moments that arise will will take care of themselves in the same way that you take care of being here. So uh, often the, the question comes up, how do I bring mindfulness into my life? How do I bring these practices into my life? And really, it's useful to reverse the question. How do I bring my life into awareness? How do I bring my life into mindfulness? How do I bring my life into heartfulness, into my heart? So, do you want the good news? (laughs) The good news is this practice is within you. Awareness is the nature of your mind. Kindness is the nature of your heart. And you have all the qualities we've been pointing to and cultivating here, they lie within you. The practice is already within you. What we're doing is uh, you know, peeling off the layers, the clouds, the ways that we uh, get distracted and obscured from our underlying nature. So in the same way that you forget that, you know, hundreds of times in a day, you know, many times in the sitting, space out, get reactive, get distracted, confused, lost, and you return. So too in life. We get lost, confused, reactive, whatever. 
and we pause, we relax for a moment, we remember, oh right, a moment of awareness is always available. Kindness is always available. There's a phrase that a teacher in Nepal once taught me, um, mindfulness is easy, remembering to be mindful is difficult, which is why we practice. The more that we practice, it's like uh, sowing seeds. The more seeds of mindfulness that we uh, plant, the more likely they are to uh, give birth to, uh, to sprouts, to seedlings. And here in this retreat, you've planted thousands and thousands of intentions and seeds of mindfulness. Every time you come back, you're strengthening this quality of awareness. This is from Thoreau. What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learnt by the longest practice. And at length it falls from us without our notice as a leaf falls from a tree. What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learnt by the longest practice. So we practice and practice not as an end in itself, not to become a good cushion dwelling meditator, although that's a good thing to, not a bad thing to do. Um, we do these practices so they become who we are. So we live them quite naturally. So a second frame for uh, moving from transitioning from retreat to you uh, back into your, your life. Not that this, not this isn't your life, it's just one part of your life. Um, is remembering uh, the quality of generosity. Right? So sometimes we can have a sense of scarcity and, 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 and sort of like, oh no, I'm going to leave this retreat and it's been so lovely or growthful or whatever it, your experience has been. And there's a, there's a sense of like, oh, I don't want to go back there yet. You know, and there's people and work. And, um, but if you can reframe that to, well, how can this transition, how can going back home be a practice of generosity? How can you take the gifts and lessons and blessings that you've learned here and actually uh, offer these in a way that's helpful to others? And so one of the things that happens as we leave a retreat um, that you won't notice because it's sort of invisible to you is uh, you give the gift of your presence, right? I can see as I, and it's very obvious this afternoon, you know, as the retreat ends, there's a certain lightning happens and a certain brightening happens and your presence is bright. And people, you'll go home, you might not feel that like that much happened. I, I heard that in the groups today. Well, nothing much happened. I'm still doubting. I'm not sure if this was any use. Yet your countenance and presence and being and nervous system is different. Can't not be different from five days of practice. And that will be probably experienced to some degree by other people. And so we can... Uh, Give, give that gift of our presence. And one of the simplest ways we do that is by um, listening. You know, usually when we leave retreat, we're very, very keen to like share every little minute thing. Oh, you should have seen it when I was lifting, moving, placing my foot, and <laughs> we were all breathing together, and it was all one, and the, the turkeys came, and it was all just this 
And they're like, oh yeah, what were you taking on the retreat? And, 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 and that's all fine, and it's fine to share these lovely things that happened. And also, you know, mindfulness is, I think, a practice of deep listening. And so the gift that we can give when we leave is to deeply listen to others. So, I wrote a poem about this. I'm not sure if it made it in my notes, or it did make it in my notes. This is called Poppies. It's actually called Shine. I wrote it some time ago, but it relates to this moment of leaving, leaving the retreat. Sometimes the faces of the poppies burst so bright out of their buds, they only shine for a day before they coil and wither away. Imagine radiating that light so briefly in this dusty and tempered life. What would you offer if all you had was but one day to reveal your gifts to the world, which is perhaps all the time you'll ever have? So I like to think of this point in the retreat as the halfway point, or even third way point. So what would it be like if you imagine this, we've basically been here for a week, and you imagine the next week of your life, whatever you're going back to, is your second part of the retreat, where you bring the same quality of intention, awareness, kindness, um, patience, curiosity about what unfolds, right? however busy or complex that life may be. Because that is the point of the practice, is to really live, as I said, to live this practice. There's a beautiful metaphor from the Zen tradition called the 10 ox herding pictures. You may have seen them depicted. It's a beautiful depiction of how um, a seeker goes seeking for uh, the awakened mind in the the metaphor of this is the ox and the, and the, the seeker has lost touch with that mind and goes seeking in the forest, eventually finds the ox, which is wild, has to uh, meet it and then tame it and then train it and then uh, become one with it. And then eventually the, the seeker doesn't stay up in the mountains where the ox comes back down into the marketplace, which is coming back down into your life where we need these practices, right? It's lovely to develop these qualities of presence and kindness here, but where actually do we need them, right? Sitting at your desk, you know, talking to your children, dealing with the homelessness in your city, uh, in conflict, in dealing with the ecological crisis, uh, in dealing with injustice and racism and all the various kinds of suffering in the world. That's where we need awareness and kindness. And so this part of the retreat, this second part of the retreat, which is sort of like the rest of your life, um, but let's take it a week at a time, (laughs) or a day at a time, is like, oh, how do I do that? You know, I mean, when you sit in the morning, which hopefully you do, you have that intention, how, you know, in what way can I bring these qualities of awareness and kindness into my day, into my life, into my body? And of course, um, uh, the, those those qualities that you need, you know, we've developed them in, in spades here: clarity, inquiry, 
wisdom, patience, kindness, love. And we also need to be patient and we need to be realistic, right? We often have, just as we have grandiose ideas of retreat, I'm gonna be meditating like this all week and I'm gonna be blissed out and it's gonna be great and I'm gonna come back enlightened and tell everybody how enlightened they are. And we can have slightly grandiose, or not grandiose, but sort of, well, maybe grandiose um, or or, uh, unrealistic uh, uh, ideas of what might happen when we go home. You know, we're gonna, you know, just cruise into the office and we're gonna be so zen and we're gonna not be reactive in our intimate relationships and we're gonna, you know, read the latest political news from Washington and just breathe out compassion and <laughs> include everyone, all political parties in our purview of kindness and maybe, maybe so. This is another way sometimes it goes. Dear Lord, so far it's been a good day. I haven't lost my temper, shouted at anyone, or forgotten anything. Amazingly, I've not told any lies, been conceited or selfish, nor have I done anybody any harm. I haven't smoked or even had a drink yet. Now, if you please, I must get on with my day, but first I must get out of bed this morning. (laughs) So to have patience. Patience. Here's another story about patience. So this is about a person, a man who's in a supermarket watching this woman uh, with her young uh, daughter in the shopping cart uh, do the shopping experience, which you know any parent will know is kind of a slightly um, challenging experience with a young one when they want all kinds of things that you know is not ideal for them to eat. So he's observing the, 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 the mother and the daughter in the store, and as they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies, and the mother tells her no. And of course, the little girl immediately begins to whine and fuss, and the mother says quietly, now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle, and again, the little girl begins to shout for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, she begins to cry. And the mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles, and then we'll go to checkout. When they get to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately begins to clamor for gum and bursts into a terrible tantrum upon discovering no gum is purchased. The mother patiently says, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home, and we can take a nice nap. The man follows her out to the parking lot and stops to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so, um, so whatever the, whoever our little Monica is inside, right? There, there, it's just another traffic jam. Oh, what a surprise. Another half an hour and you'll be home. There, there, another tedious argument at work. There, you know, and, and so it goes. Right? We're parenting ourselves with sweetness, with kindness. So the first practice that we do when we leave a retreat is we let go. We let go of this beautiful hall, this beautiful place, this community, this beautiful land. Um, and 
Yeah, we see that all things, as the Buddha spoke and as we've been speaking to, everything that arises passes away, including retreats, including all the beautiful states that arose for you will pass away. It's the nature of experience. And uh, the more that we hold on, like don't like dragging your fingers stuck into the land, <laughs> the harder it is to then meet what's 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 arising, what's what's to come. You, if, to say good, to say hello, you have to say goodbye. We have to honor what was here and then let go. The essence of these teachings is non-clinging, letting go, non-grasping. The in the in the. Pali, when the Buddha was asked to describe the essence of his teaching in one sentence, he said, Dham, Dham, Sabe, Dhamma, Nalama, Binibasaya, which means uh, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, is to be held onto. We experience it, we appreciate it, and we let go, and we allow the moments to unfold. However, our minds are more like Velcro, and we stick. <laughs> And we hold on to experience, we hold on to states, or we try to, of course, we can't really hold on to anything because everything is transitory and moving. And the more that we can flow with experience, the more that we can honor what is, what was, and also meet what is, whatever that is, whether that's the taxi driver or the, you know, the airplane or the person that picks you up at the gate. And one of the things that you may see arising uh, in this way that we hold on is the way that we hold on to states and special experiences. So we'll be ending silence tomorrow morning and we'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Um, but you may start, one of the things, the way the personality quickly returns, you've had, a, you've had a vacation from your personality for five days, more or less. And it comes up a little bit in the brief social interactions, but mostly it's had a holiday. As soon as you start talking, oh, hello, here I am. Here's how great my retreat was, or how crappy my retreat was. Or, um, so just know that how these things come and go. The other thing that's interesting to notice um, on retreat is sometimes we have a buildup of tanha, right? We've been speaking about tanha, this movement of mind to want to grasp along, to have certain experiences, usually pleasurable. Um, anybody had a buildup of desire for, you know, it might be sex, it might be coffee, it might be pizza, it might be Game of Thrones, it might be who knows what it is. Um, sports, you know, whatever you're into, that, you know, we have with creatures of habit, so the craving grows. That can be really insightful, right? Whatever, whatever the craving is, like say, let's say it's food or drink related, right? It's, it's a cappuccino, you rush out to Fairfax, you get a pizza and cappuccino, right? Bring as much mindfulness to that experience as you can and see if, the, if all that week of craving and desire and longing, actually, if that experience matches up to the craving. Right? A friend of ours, Diana Winston, was on, on a retreat once, and she was a three-month retreat, and uh, she noticed she went into the kitchen and was kind of checking out what was coming up for dinner, and one day it was pizza. And, she, and like, pizza on a retreat's a big deal, especially a three-month retreat. 
And she was like, all week, she's like, pizza, pizza, pizza. Okay, we let go, let go, pizza, pizza, let go, let go. And then, and then she's like, you know, rushes to the front of the line. Actually, she's second in front of the line because she doesn't want to be the front of the line because that would be not very spiritual, but the second's okay. <laughs> and then she goes up and loads up with pizza. She sits down, okay, breathe. Let's really be present, breathe, breathe. And she takes a bite of pizza and the thought are right. And it's, it just tastes like, it tastes like pizza. And she's like, oh, it's pizza. It's yeah. just pizza. I mean, it's good. But it's not like that good. <laughs> it's not like we're thinking for craving for a week about it. It's pizza. Lasts for a few moments, pleasurable, and then, okay, time to go to the bathroom or whatever. <laughs> so what I really want to talk to, which I'm getting a long time to get to, is um, uh, a framework for, for, for our lives, um, which is the Eightfold Path. So Aaron... Uh, beautifully spoke about the four truths, uh, four noble truths on the first night, first afternoon. Um, and the, th- the fourth of those truths is the path leading to the end of suffering. So the first truth is suffering, second is the cause of suffering, tanha, the third is the, the, the resolution, the liberation from the cause of suffering, from grasping, and the fourth is the path. And so why I want to speak to the path is because the path points to where we are in this point in the retreat, which is exploring how this practice relates to the rest of your life. So I want to read something from Achan Cha, who we quoted, who is an amazing Thai forest master. He said, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning, should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you sit. What is important only is you keep watchful with awareness, whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. So uh, he's, re- he's reflecting um, the teaching from the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is where these foundations of mindfulness come from, where the Buddha said to cultivate mindfulness in all postures, sitting, walking, standing, and lying down, which we've been doing, and also in all activities. He said, and further meditators, a meditator in mind- is mindful when going forwards and backwards, mindful when uh, looking straight or looking away, in bending, stretching, wearing robes, carrying the bowl, eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, and walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, speaking, and keeping silence. They apply clear awareness. They live contemplating the body in the body, etc. Basically, uh, there's no breaks. One is to be mindful in all moments, in all postures, in all activities. Which means you can be mindful anywhere and it doesn't take any time. You're simply applying the lens of awareness to whatever you're doing. Maybe you have an hour commute every day. That can be your practice of mindfulness. Or you walk the dog twice a day. Or you're, you're preparing sandwiches every morning for the kids, or you are doing housework, or whatever it is, your daily activities, right? Make that your practice. Choose three simple things like washing your hair and 
feeding the birds and you know, vacuuming the kitchen, well, I don't know what, it, what activities you do, make that your practice. How can I bring as much presence to this as, as my walking or sitting meditation? So, um, <clears throat> so we've been cultivating, so there's the Eightfold Path is basically divided into three sections, um, ethics, meditation, and wisdom and they all interweave. So we've been cultivating the, th- the, the three aspects of, of meditation here. The first is mindfulness, um, which we have said enough about, so we don't need to say too much about that, except learning how to bring that into all moments. And the second uh, facet of uh, meditation is we've been learning to cultivate uh, samadhi, this gathering, unified, collected attention, this ability to focus and sustain a continuity of attention. And in our lives, there are many opportunities to cultivate uh, this this gathered, unified mind. Right? I've taught in a lot of tech companies, and and the engineers for them, coding is a concentration practice, and they'll sit for six, eight hours, sometimes at a stint, and be coding. Right? But maybe you're an artist, or a musician, or a gardener, or a masseuse, um, or you like to read, or you like to do long-distance running. Right? Many, many ways that you can uh, learn to absorb and settle and unify the attention into an activity. Right? So sometimes I work with absolute beginners at meditation, but maybe they're a classical pianist or they're a um, woodworker um, or a gardener, and they've learned to refine their attention through their, through their work, through their art, through, through being a dancer or um, writer. Right? So we can, we, we can to notice what allows your uh, concentration, your focus to unify and strengthen in your life. Right. And, and the meditation is certainly one support for that. I, I met one student who was on my retreat recently and he had profound concentration. He'd only been meditating seven months, but he sat for two hours in the morning, two hours in the night during the week. And in the weekend, he sat nine hours on Saturday, nine hours on Sunday. And I thought that's no wonder why he has deep concentration because <laughs> his, his life has become a meditation retreat. I'm not saying that you do that, but meditation is certainly a support Conversely, looking at what erodes attention, right? I, I know from my own experience that technology erodes attention, erodes concentration. Multitasking erodes uh, ability to focus. If you don't believe me, let's do a quick exercise. Okay, count to 10. One, to just out loud. One, two, three, four, five. And then just run through the alphabet on your own. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, P, L, Okay, enough. Okay, now we go, and you do this on your own. One, A, two, B, up to, up to Z, quickly. It starts to stumble, right? Multitasking, task switching, doesn't work so well. Right? We think we can multitask. We think, oh, I can chat on the phone and drive and not have any diminishment of my capacity. Right? <laughs> it's the equivalent of drunk driving, so they say. Right? So notice what's eroding your focus and concentration. 
right? Multitasking, having seven screens open, doing five things at once on your laptop, right? These things have an impact. Our attention has gone down from 12, the average concentration span has gone down from 12 to eight seconds in, I think, the last 20 years. Uh, down to we, uh, the average uh, time span now for, for ability to concentrate is eight seconds, which is maybe two breaths, which is why you wonder why you can't focus on more than two breaths. Goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds, just to put it in perspective. So the third uh, facet of um, uh, meditation as it's configured in the Eightfold Path is uh, wise, uh, wise effort. And we've been exploring this in the context of cultivating wholesome states of mind and releasing unwholesome states of mind. So in the context of meditation, we're cultivating patience, curiosity, calm, clarity, concentration, letting go, equanimity, right? We cultivate many of these qualities um, in our life in a very active way. We can incline our attention, noticing when they're absent and, and that very noticing can actually bring them forth like patience. And we're releasing unwholesome uh, states of mind and heart, like blaming, like judging, like self-hatred, like reactivity, um, etc., etc. And so um, in our lives, we can very much, uh, this is very much a useful practice to notice as we go through our lives, uh, which states we're cultivating and which states we're uh, releasing. Are we cultivating wholesome states? When, you, when you're in your, stuck in traffic in your commute every day, what states of mind are you cultivating? Are you cultivating reactivity and patience, judgment, or are you able to cultivate surrender, letting go, and equanimity, for example? When I was, I remember I was, the time when I was working on my book, my first book, and uh, I was um, really getting kind of, I was working really hard and writing six hours, four, six hours a day, and I was kind of getting a little dour. And a friend of mine said, what do you do for joy every day? I said, hmm, I've forgotten about that one. I'm just working, getting through the book and all of that. And so I made the intention to cultivate uh, an activity that would arouse joy every day, which for me is hiking in, in, the, in the woods and that, in that time I was hiking in the rain and it totally transformed my mind like to bring uh, attention to a quality that was ne- that was imbalanced or lacking right? and one way that's easy to do that we've talked a little bit on this retreat is inclining your mind inclining your attention so when you go back home inclining your attention to what's uplifting to what brings joy to what gladdens the mind and heart we tend to have a negative negativity bias, a negativity fixation. Notice what uplifts the mind and heart. For me, it's orienting to nature, to beauty, to what's uh, flourishing. And similarly, noticing how we habitually cultivate negative states, which might be as simple as listening to the radio, listening to the news, and feeling depressed or reactive or judgmental or rage or frustrated or hopeless. Right? Noticing the cause for how unwholesome states arise. 
So there's the so cultivating mindfulness, uh, concentration, wise effort. We do that not as an end in itself. We cultivate awareness in support of what? In support of understanding. Right? So the, the first of the Eightfold Path is wise understanding, a wise view. And what are we understanding? We're understanding the, what, what are the causes of suffering and what are the causes of happiness or peace. Right? We, come, we, we circle around to the Four Noble Truths. What allows uh, freedom to arise in the mind and heart and what creates contraction and, um, and, and pain, right? Is, isn't this the most important, one of the most important things you want to look at? How and where am I suffering? How is that arising? How am I contributing to that? How, uh, how can I free myself from those reactive states that cause me a lot of distress and others distress? So um, this, is, this is an ongoing observation. What, causes, what are the causes for happiness and what are the causes for peace? So I want you to um, clench your fist, hold, hold up your hand and clench your fist. Right? So this is, a, this is emblematic of, of the reactive mind and heart. Right? So think of something, think, think of a situation in your life where you get reactive. Maybe it's listening to some famous political person or somebody that you has annoyed you and annoys you at work or something that just bugs you in your life and you get contracted right feel that hostility rage frustration irritation negativity and then uh, release the tension in your hand and just open your hand allow that reactivity to cease so uh, this this is really sort of the essence of the truths, right? The, the mind that's bound in contraction, reaction, suffering, and the mind that's released, right? We go through our lives in retreat, in meditation, in our day, moment by moment, like this, or like this, and like this, like this, right? Maybe you said meditation, ah, meditation, oh, but my back hurts, oh, I hate that, oh, well, Breathe, okay, back is just unpleasant, unpleasant. Oh, that person's making a noise. Oh, I can't stand that. Okay, may you be happy, may you be happy. Okay, right, and it's like life, right? You go back, you know, you're driving to work. Oh, there's traffic. Well, it is what it is. And, and then you get a text. Oh, no, I'm not supposed to be texting while I'm driving. Okay, let it go. I'm not going to look at my phone. Release, 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 right? We go through our life, and I'm talking about rather sort of superficial examples, but there's much more um, painful and problematic examples. But the essence and the principle is the same, which is why the meditation is a metaphor for life. We, we can see how easily our mind contracts around a breath or a pain or an emotion or a thought or a memory and how it can release, contract, release. This is our practice. What supports that and what supports the release? The second uh, piece of uh, wise view is understanding karma. And without getting into a philosophical exploration of karma, which literally means action, the, the principle is understanding that our actions have consequences. 
reactivity has a consequence. Letting go has a consequence. So as we bring mindfulness to our actions, to our thoughts, to our speech, to our behavior, to our choices, to our investments, to our voting, to uh, the engagement with society, everything that we do and say and think has a consequence and is either onward leading, supporting well-being for ourselves and others or not. And as we develop mindfulness, we become more sensitized to how our actions and choices uh, cause suffering or not. It's a beautiful line from Padmasambhava who brought the uh, Dharma teachings to Tibet. He said, my view is as wide as this, as expansive as the sky, but my un- understanding of the law of cause and effect is as grind, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Right? I have this spacious view of awareness and reality, but my understanding of the precision and the potency of what I do and, and how it has a consequence is, it needs to be that fine. So I'm not gonna say too much about that now, but just to be mindful how that operates in your life, to notice how everything we do arises out of conditions, has its influence and impact, including your intention to be here or including your intention as when you leave the retreat. So knowing that, our, our understanding of suffering and the causes of suffering, uh, understanding of how our actions have consequences, it informs intention, which, which Aaron was speaking to last night. And in the context of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha speaks about intention as transforming our orientation to life that can, one, that can be self-referential and cruel and harsh and unkind to an orientation that's one of non-grasping of kindness and compassion. What would it be like if everybody, everybody in this world had an intention to live and act with an intention of kindness and compassion? Right? We'd be living in a heaven realm for the most part. That's the, that's the orientation of wise intention. And so you may think about as you leave this retreat, what wholesome intention, aspiration am I, am I leaving the retreat with that is informed by kindness and compassion? There's a um, story from the Sufi poet Hafez where uh, one of his patrons and students comes to him and says, oh, I want to, and he had, had these visions of God in his meditation. He says, oh, Hafez, I want to talk to you about my visions of, of, of the divine. And Hafez says, okay, that's all right, but tell me uh, how many goats do you have? And the, and the man says, goats? You're asking me about goats? And I'm talking to you about God? And he says, yeah, how many goats do you have? And Because Hafez knew he was a farmer. And then he says, uh, and, um, and then how do you take care of your servants? And uh, do you feed the birds in winter? And, and how do you take care of your, your, your elderly parents? And grilling him with these questions. And then, and the, and the man answers him, but he's slightly confused. And he says, "You ask me if your visions of the divine, of the sacred, are true." He says, "They are, if they make you more kind and more caring to every person and every creature you meet." 
the f- point and the fruit of the practice reveals itself in how kind we are and how caring we are to ourselves, to each other, to life, to the snake who was crawling out there who seemed to want to come into the office at lunchtime, um, to the people who are driving slowly in front of us, to the annoying people you might have to work with, to um, the strangers in the street who are homeless and cold or hungry. Right? How, does, how does the practice live in you in a very real way that impacts how you move? Right? If it's not impacting you in some way and impacting how you act and speak and help and serve and be kind, the practice is abstract. It hasn't yet made its way through into your lived experience and lived life. And one way it can tran- it can move through is in generosity. I think of much of this practice of metta mindfulness is a, is a generosity of heart. And one of the beautiful ways that can come from this practice is we become more generous, partly because we see. It's a wholesome state of mind that creates wholesomeness in ourselves and wholesomeness and happiness in others. It's kind of a win-win. So when you might think about how would that look for yourself? How could you be more kind and more caring in your life as an expression of the fruit of this wise intention? I work with many students and um, I see how, there's a, the, one of the habits I see is um, we have a habit of depriving ourselves. And um, like, well, I'll take care of myself, I'll meditate, I'll do my yoga practice, or I'll go and have some you know, time in the garden when I've done all my work and all my lists and my chores and I've got through everything on my to-do list. And that sounds exhausting. And I asked, does it ever happen? Do you ever get to those things? No, the list is too long. I just go to bed and then I start again the next day. How do we take care of ourselves in a very simple way? One thing, one action that you might do that's an expression of kindness. Out of this wise intention, it informs our action in the world. And the last three uh, limbs of the Eightfold Path, uh, wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, really come out of this understanding of our interconnection, understanding that our actions have consequences. As the Dalai Lama once said, my religion is kindness. My religion is kindness. He said, if I had to choose between emptiness, understanding, and kindness, I would choose kindness. Even though kindness flows out of emptiness, but that's another conversation. Um, It matters what we do, it matters how we live. And with mindfulness and heartfulness, it can inform us in a way that's uh, beneficial for ourselves and each other in the world. And so wise action, and the the main way this is talked about in the teachings is um, uh, through the embodying and the living of enlightened action and living, living enlightened action in our lives is uh, living in harmony with the, the ethical guidelines that, you, that we talked about at the beginning of the retreat. The guideline of non-harming, of not taking or stealing, not harming people through our, our sexuality, through speaking kindly and wisely, through not harming our bodies with uh, intoxicants of mind and body that, that uh, 
that are harmful. So treating others as you'd want to be treated. The Buddha talked about sila ethics as being the foundation of the spiritual life. He said, what determines nobility? This is where the Buddha went right up against the caste system that was def- that were in your, your status as a human being was, was dictated by birth in, according to the, um, the, the religion, uh, religious teachings of the time. Um, he said, that does, your birth does not determine your nobility. He says, what determines your nobility is your ethical uh, living. Your, 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 the foundation of sila, of ethics. Let that be your refuge, a guide. That's what creates nobility as a human being. Beautiful, beautiful uh, way to really subvert a paradigm that was very uh, harmful to so many people. So how can you act with less harming in your life? I mean, there's a reason we serve vegetarian food here, because we don't, want to harm animals for, for, our, for our food. Right? In Thailand, some of the monks ordain some of the large teak and old growth trees so they don't get cut down. So some people it's um, uh, social action. Some of people it's looking at your investments and where you put your money and um, investing and buying wisely in products and, and, and things that are not causing harm to the world. For some, it's engaging in service, right? There's, there's, you can see ethics as a restraint or you can see it as how do I bring kindness and generosity and connection and well-being and justice and fairness in my life and in society. So um, maybe we'll speak more to these uh, precepts tomorrow because I'm running out of time here and I'm aware it's dinner time. Um, so I just want to speak briefly to the two last uh, pieces of, of the Eightfold Path. So there's wise action, living ethically, and then there's wise speech. Right? Speech is a, a huge area in our lives and probably one of the places we most easily suffer and cause suffering. How many people haven't... Has anybody not been hurt by something somebody said? Has anybody not caused harm to someone by what you said? Right, it happens you know, frequently, weekly, daily, right? Huge part of our lives. You've been freed from that for a week because we did this. <laughs> we can't really go around with duct tape on our mouths, although that would help us from harming speech-wise. Um, so, um, uh, so again, this is an important area to bring mindfulness and awareness and, and kindness. And the Buddha gave some very simple instructions. Speak what's truthful and what's useful. Very helpful instruction. We may, you might go home and, you, and you, it's like, oh, I've been on an insight meditation retreat. I've had lots of insights about you, 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 and you. <laughs> that would be your family. <laughs> that never goes down very well. You just hold that to yourself. Um, truthful and useful. It might be truthful, but not necessarily useful. Another very simple instruction said, um, uh, uh, he said, choose the right time, the right place, 
the right person and the right subject to have that conversation. The right time, so often, not at midnight with your partner as you're having this big conversation, no, not at midnight, no. In the morning when you're awake, right time, right place. Right? You don't do it, you don't have a private conversation in front of 20 people necessarily. Right time, right place, right person. Right? You might not be talking to your five-year-old about how depressed and overwhelmed you are by climate change. That may not be the right person, right subject, right? and on it goes. So, um, and, and one simple practice that I learned from the first year I started practicing uh, Buddhism, um, uh, this, this, this emphasis on, on wise speech, and I, when I became aware of it, and I, I was at college, and I noticed about 90% of the conversation at college, which is sort of everywhere, was negative, bitchy, backbitey, gossipy, and just kind of like, I'd leave these conversations being like, kind of like, and that was kind of icky, yucky, and I hope the person who we were talking about never gets to hear that. And so I, pra- I started to practice wise speech in that context, and I realized I didn't have a lot to say. And I, I just didn't want to be privy to certain conversations. And it actually really changed my social life, because it really then made me choose people who were actually supporting wise speech, and therefore wholesome states of mind. Um, Lastly, um, wise livelihood, right? Again, the, 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 the path is exploring every facet of our lives, including uh, work. And work is a huge part of most of our lives. It's usually, it's the, it's the place we experience most stress in life, it's in, in t- according to research. Um, this is from Bertrand Russell. One of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. <laughs> And one's work might be terribly important, but maybe not as overly important as you think it is, which is why we tend to get imbalanced around it. Again, the Buddha talked about choosing livelihood, choose wisely, do work that's, 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 that's useful for yourself, for your family, for your community, and for the world. Right? Very simple, but not necessarily so easy when we're in the workplace. And again, when I work with students, so often so much of the suffering comes from the kind of work or just the, the, the unrealistic expectations of what's expected, 80, 90 hour work week. I worked with a, a student at a tech company and she was ex- her boss expected her to work 16 hours a day because he was working 18 hours a day, right? In, unsustainable, cruel actually. So, um, so again, to bring mindfulness to what kind of work are you doing? Is it supportive of your well-being, supportive of your practice? And is it doing good in the world ultimately? That may be more complex given how interconnected our work and uh, companies are. But to, to, but to bring one's life into one's practice, bring one's work into one's practice, is this actually really nurturing the qualities of awakening and compassion? Maybe it is, maybe not, maybe it's mixed. Sometimes you may not feel like you have a choice. Oscar Wilde said the best way to appreciate your job is to imagine yourself without one. So that's also another thing to consider. (laughs) Um, But but to be mindful, is this conducive to, is this onward leading? Is this uh, leading to uh, cultivation of well-being? and the reduction of suffering in myself and the world or not? And if not, that's worthy to look and inquire into. 
Okay, so that's a lot. So we'll say a lot more about transitioning tomorrow. I said a little bit about it today. But really, again, just wanting to frame our lives in the context of practice, right? We're cultivating in the, in the frame of the Eiffel Path meditation here, which informs our understanding and intention, which informs our action and our speech, our livelihood, and also our relationships, how we move in the world. The good news is this practice is within you, as I've mentioned, the qualities of awareness, kindness, discernment, discrimination, wisdom, insight, and then it's a practice of bringing it to bear moment to moment in our life and our work and our relationships. So let's just sit for a moment. Let's just let these words settle before we go for dinner. And sensing your body, sensing your heart, the goodness of your heart, the goodness of your practice. Trusting in the inner knowing, awareness, and kindness to guide you. Thank you for your attention. Um, It's dinner time, so please make your way down. We're a little late, so enjoy your dinner. And we'll come back here for a sit, uh, actually for um, a closing process here at seven o'clock. So please everybody come to that on time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.